Hi, my name is Katie. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 51, 17, and 21 through 22. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Rise up, Jerusalem, who drank the cup of wrath from the Lord's hand. You drank, you drained the goblet of reeling. Therefore, hear this, suffering one, who is drunk but not from wine. The Lord, your Lord and your God, who contends for his people, says, Look, I have taken the cup of reeling, the goblet of my wrath from your hand. You will no longer drink from it. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Cassie. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jesse. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. Well, Lent as a spiritual practice can be embraced as a season of turning toward, turning toward Jesus. A lot of times when you think of Lent, or maybe culturally, or from some vague memory of a family member, or maybe of your own childhood, a lot of the emphasis is placed on the fasting, on what you're turning away from. And so there's these conversations, what are you giving up for Lent? Well, what are you giving up for Lent? And by the way, whatever you're giving up for Lent, Sundays are mini Easter's. So whatever you've been giving up during Lent on Sundays, you can enjoy. I should have told you that like two weeks ago. You would have been a lot happier, maybe a lot more caffeinated um, here this morning. But regardless, the focus, I think, when we, when we observe this, when we participate in this as a spiritual practice, the focus is not what we're giving up as though it were some way of twisting God's arm or persuading Him, no. The focus is the one that we are turning toward. In fact, all of the things we turn away from is simply to create space, breath, a pause, a moment to be able to say, okay, God, open the eyes of my heart and my spirit. Teach me to see Jesus again. That's why many of you are doing this with us. We're praying the Psalms together on the New Life Downtown blog. There's a little schedule where it says which Psalms each day, two in the morning, two in the evening. We're reading through John's gospel together. Why? Because we're saying, Holy Spirit, you be the one that turns our attention, that turns our hearts toward Jesus so that this journey toward Easter is not a flurry of, oh my gosh, can you believe it's spring break and uh, the weather, it's snowing and oh, it's Easter and hey, what are we doing this summer? And you know, that's how we mark time. But there is a different way to mark time and it is to mark time around the life of Christ 
so that we can say, Holy Spirit, teach me to keep company with Jesus. Holy Spirit, teach me to turn toward Jesus. Holy Spirit, turn me away from my own selfish rhythms. Turn me away from my own habits and turn me again and again and again toward Christ. Amen? That's what this season is about. Well, we've been in this series during Lent called Lament. And in the first week, we talked about suffering. And then in the second week, last week, we talked about grief and loss. And I spent a fair amount of time last week talking about the different kinds of losses that correspond with sadness and how normal that is to the human experience. This week, the two words for our reflection time is anguish and anxiety. Real uppers. I know a lot of times, you know, New Life has been called the happy church, and so a lot of times you come to New Life and you're not feeling joy, but you're sort of made to sing along and, and, and be happy and dance and all of this stuff. Uh, not so much dancing here, I haven't seen that yet, but maybe soon. Um, but, but, but I think there, it is appropriate to pause and to say we don't just rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. And so you might be here this morning, you're thinking, anguish and anxiety, that is not what I feel. I'm going to go find a happy church, you know. I think it's worth stopping and realizing that we are part of this wide body of Christ, and that when one part hurts, we all hurt, and that it's okay to stop and to say, all right, well, maybe there are others who are here who are feeling anguish, who are feeling anxiety. I want to say a couple things about this before we begin in earnest. Anxiety sometimes can mean this kind of nervous um, paranoia. The way I'm talking about it today is more of the kind of anxiety that is related to anguish, and that is a heaviness, a pressing in from all sides. I've read uh, different people describe moments of anxiety attacks, and it feels like the room is getting smaller, feels like the walls close in, feel like oxygen is just not there, which is already rare in this town, you know, but it feels even harder to, to, to get air. I'm thinking of this kind of experience, the experience of weight, of heaviness, of the walls closing in from all sides. It's the words like the psalmist would say, my enemies have surrounded me, I'm hemmed in on every side. He probably meant it literally, and we mean it experientially. We, we, We sort of feel this thing of, I'm being closed in, the weight of life. Maybe it is as a parent, and you're saying the weight of thinking about how to raise a child. I don't know how to do this. Why won't this baby stop crying? Or or what's going to happen with their decisions or their friendships? And the weight is pressing in. Or maybe it's as a friend, and you're thinking about some other friends, and you think, I don't know how to help them. I don't know how to walk through this with them. And the weight is pressing in on you. Maybe... It's as a son or a daughter, and you're thinking about aging parents, and you're thinking about different situations. You know, I, I don't know how to deal with that. I'm not prepared for illness. I'm not prepared for this transition in life to lose the generation above you. That can be a weight that feels like it's pressing in. But before we are willing to admit this or acknowledge this, I think a lot of times the very first kind of flag that jumps up is the one that says, wait a minute, you're a Christian, you can't feel this. 
Isn't it written somewhere, be anxious for nothing? I just heard it in the New Testament reading. I can't be anxious. I can't feel weight. I can't feel the heaviness. I, 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 no, 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 I don't feel that way. I'm good. I'm good. You're pushing it down. It's like that whack-a-mole game. You know, you push it down one day, but boom, it pops up another place. Oh, why am I feeling this way? And you find yourself snapping at friends or family members or roommates. You know, why am I so short? Because you keep pressing this feeling of anguish or weight, but it keeps popping up in other places. It keeps going, boop, boop, here I am. Remember? Life is hard. And you're like, no, it's not. When I was in Tulsa, I was exposed to a kind of Christian culture that said the Christian life was ever and always victorious. And of course, what that means is you should never experience heaviness or anxiety or anguish or a weight that actually to experience those things must mean you don't have enough faith. And who's heard, faith and fear can't coexist? Except that the great man of faith, Abraham, had plenty of experiences of fear in his life after having shown faith. So it seems that fear is the very condition out of which God brings faith. But that's another sermon, isn't it? And so we've sort of been told, okay, well, listen, if you had faith, you wouldn't feel anxiety, you wouldn't feel ang- the anguish, you wouldn't feel the weight, you wouldn't feel the heaviness of life, you would just be cheerful all the time. And so then you begin to internalize this and say, well, if I do feel the the pressures and the weight of life, maybe it's because I just don't have enough faith. Maybe there are others who kind of tiptoe through the tulips and then there's me and I don't. Uh, I'm like Eeyore sulking in the grass, you know. (laughs) And you wonder how to get through this. The The other day someone said to me, Glenn, I feel like sometimes there are two gods. The God that I come to on Sunday, who wants my praise, and then the God who is silent in my prayer room. You don't have to raise your hands, but I think that accurately describes how many of us might feel. The God that I feel hopeful about on Sundays, but the God that I feel abandoned by during the week. The God who seems to not answer my prayers, and it only adds to this feeling of weight. What do we do with this? All through this series, we've talked about the place and the role of lament. And last week, we said, look, life is not a flat line. That any counselor will tell you that the human experience is designed to be up and down. That this illusion of saying, I I just need to feel normal, is sometimes a myth that we're chasing because to be human is to experience joy and pain and love and hurt. That to live in this life is to be taken along the experience. And and, and C.S. Lewis said, the only place outside of hell safe from the dangers of love is, excuse me, I just gave the punchline away. Man, I ruined that. (laughs) The only place outside of heaven Safe from the dangers of love is hell. See, that's, that's not so powerful. Oh. <laughs> the point being, if we are to love here and now, you're going to experience the joys of it and the ache of it. 
We talked last week also from these different sociologists who've done different kinds of studies to show that regardless of culture, regardless of moment in history, and regardless of age, that giving voice to our pain is a human need. As natural as a baby beginning to cry when it's hungry, or afraid, or alone, or away from his or her mother or father. In the Psalms, we find laments, and what we see even deeper than just cries of these people is that these are laments based on something strong, meaning, here's what I mean, the psalmists who are writing these prayers and laments are in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. The covenant paradigm in the Old Testament kind of works something like this. There is Yahweh who's the stronger partner in the covenant. A lot of ancient Near East treaties and covenants work this way, where there's a stronger party and there's a weaker party. Yahweh in the Old Testament is clearly the stronger party, lest we think of covenant with God as some sort of equal, you do this, then I'll do this. You know, it's, it's from the outset acknowledged that Yahweh is the stronger party. And as the stronger party in the covenant, Yahweh owes Israel nothing. He owes them nothing, but he gives them everything. And that's the beauty of this covenant love in the Old Testament. The God who owes his people nothing, but who gives them everything. And it is out of that promise that the people begin to lament. See, I think one of the things we make the mistake of thinking is we say, okay, if I really trusted God, I wouldn't cry out. I wouldn't protest. If I really trusted God, I wouldn't need to tell him about my anguish. Actually, the reverse is true. It's because you trust in God that you give voice to your anguish. It's because you trust in God. What if, you parents in the room, what if your, your son or your daughter, you, you found them one day and they're just sitting in the corner of their room stuffing paper into their mouth? You say, what, what, what are you doing? You say, well, I'm I'm hungry. So I understand that. I mean, it's, it's morning, it's breakfast, but why are you stuffing paper in your mouth? So I didn't want to tell you that I'm hungry. Why didn't you want to tell me? Well, because I just, I didn't think you would do anything about it. Excuse me? No, I'll, I'll get you breakfast. What, what? You see where this is going. That in fact, the petition is proof of the relationship. The petition is proof of the relationship, and actually, so is the protest. The protest is proof of the relationship. If I didn't think you cared, I wouldn't tell you what was bothering me in the relationship. And side note, this is where a lot of marriages grow cold, is you stop voicing your petitions or your quote-unquote protests to one another because you stop believing that they care. And so a spouse is doing something that's really hurtful to you and you stop saying, you stop telling them that because you just think it's never going to change. And that's the beginning of this unraveling, right? In a relationship. In the same way, the psalmist believed that the covenant relationship with Yahweh is so strong that they cannot remain silent. They know that Yahweh is so good and so loving and it's because He's promised everything to them. It's because they trust that, that they say, okay, God, so what's up? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you acting? 
Why have you hidden your face from us? One of the um, journal articles I was reading this week talked about the difference between a soft lament and a hard lament. And that was interesting to me. Because a hard lament is, is very, um, um, it's very abrasive. It, it, it's like the extreme sort of protest. It's that point in the friendship when you don't feel like you're getting anywhere in the relationship and all of a sudden you, you say, come on, please hear me. And the other person says, I'm sorry, what, what? What's going on? I, I didn't realize, right? It's that moment. But most of life is not full of these boiling over hard lament moments. Most of the psalms are not full of those kinds of laments. Most of the psalms are full of what could be called a soft lament. A lament that says, hey God, um, remember? Remember what we talked about? Hey God? In fact, there is what's called a negative petition. Okay, this sounds like a funny phrase. All that means is a negative petition is you're asking God to not do something. Do not hide your face. Do not turn away. Do not be silent. Now, when things get really bad, occasionally the psalmist will say, you've abandoned us. Or you'll read it in Job. There are particular moments in Job where Job says, okay, I see what you've done. You tricked me. Jeremiah says that. You know. But most of the time, it's not full-blown like that. Most of the time, it's much softer. It's, it's God, please don't. God, please be there. God, please don't forget. God, please don't leave us. Because even in the lament psalms, laments are never an end in themselves. You'll find in the psalms movement. You'll find movement. Now us as People here in the West, we would like that movement to be linear. We would like to read a psalm that starts out expressing protest and ends very nicely with praise and a bow. And some psalms do. Some of them do. But most often it's like this. Oh God, how long? But yet will I trust you, O Lord, you have been my rock. But God, my enemies surround me all the day I am pressed in. But you, O Lord, have been a shield to generations past. But why, O Lord? And isn't that like our experience of pain in life? We talk about recovery as if it was step one, step two, step three, when often healing is like... And sometimes the path you're on is different from the path someone else is on. Which makes grieving with one another, walking with one another, a much more tender task, doesn't it? I so appreciate Bemney teaching in our Sunday school the last two weeks about grief and about walking with others through this because it's worth hearing from someone who's gone through loss to say, how, 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 how do we, what's helpful? What's, what's not helpful? And how do we pay attention to the Holy Spirit? And how do we pay attention to one another so that we're not walking around as Christians giving each other pat answers and saying, oh, you're feeling that? Well, just trust the Lord, brother. Okay, well, hey, how about lunch, you know? And to be patient with one another. That one day you might feel on top of the world with trust and hope and confidence in God. And the other day you might feel back down to the, why, Lord? 
how long, Lord? The two most frequent questions in lament psalms, why and how long? Aren't those the questions of anguish? Why, Lord? How long, Lord? I want us to pray this morning a psalm together. Psalm 35 We've just chosen 10 verses from it. It's going to come up on the screen, and I'll pray the first line, and then you'll pray the line after it, and we'll do this together. Let's stand. Oh, Lord, how long will you look on? I will give you thanks in the great congregation. Do not let my treacherous foes rejoice over me. For they do not plan for peace. They opened their mouths at me and said, But you saw it, O Lord. Do not be silent. Awake, arise to my cause. Give me justice, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. Do not let them say in their hearts, Aha, just what we want. Let all who rejoice at my ruin be ashamed and disgraced. Let those who favor my cause sing out with joy and be glad. Amen. You may be seated. As we've talked about this series in particular and Lent in general, we've said this is a journey with Jesus to the cross, but what we discovered along the way is that (laughs) Jesus' life is actually God journeying with you along the way. It's God entering into our pain, it's God entering into our anguish, it's God entering into our sadness and our grief. Matthew's Gospel, 26th chapter, verse 36. We heard it read this morning. I'll read parts of it again. And then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The words here mean distressed, and in anxiety, distressed and anxious, anguished and anxious. Verse 38, and then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. This expression, this phrase, even to death, is a way of saying to the limit. This is Jesus saying, I am to the limit." Of the depth of my sorrow. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if 
it be possible. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We struggle as Christians to admit that Jesus experienced any kind of negative emotions. The Son of God surely must have always been smiling with gentle eyes and olive skin, blonde highlights. (laughs) Just always like this. We don't think of Jesus ever experiencing negative emotions. That can't be... He must have just sort of put that on, right? No, no, that's a heresy called docetism. That said that Jesus only appeared to be human. It's sort of like Superman and Clark Kent. He's only bluffing with the glasses and the bumbly, you know, thing. I mean, he's actually really Superman. And so when we read this passage of Jesus in the garden, we're thinking, okay, okay, let's just skip to that part where he busts out of the grave. Instead of letting ourselves say, this is the humanity of Jesus in its full. Do you know a remarkable thing about the humanity of Jesus is it's not just the humanity of Jesus like our humanity. It's Jesus showing us what it looks like to be truly and fully human. So think of this. Would the truly and fully human one the only one who lived from birth to death as truly and fully human. Would this one grieve? Would this one have anguish? Or does the truly and fully human person, is, is that person above emotion? That's worth asking, isn't it? Because sometimes when we feel overcome by emotion, we tell ourselves, oh, I'm just less than. I'm smaller than. And if I were truly and fully human, I would be able to do, use mind over matter and not experience any emotion. Because the ideal human is the rational one. Isn't that what the Enlightenment told us? The ideal human is the one in command of his being, floats above the storms, We like that story of Jesus. Instead of say, what if to be truly and fully human looks like Jesus? And it looks like Jesus even in the garden. Jesus in the garden saying, I am sorrowful to the limit. I'm feeling this to the full. Could it be that if humans are made in the image of God and if to be truly human is to fully feel that part of the reason we do is because that's what God himself is like? I wonder if our impression that to be human is to be strong and unemotional is because we also think that that's what God is like. That God is a stoic. That God is unmoved. I love the parallel between Greek mythologies and the Old Testament stories. In the Greek mythologies, the gods are doing their thing and it spills over into the earth and humans are affected by what the gods are doing. In the Old Testament stories, it's the other way around. Humans are a mess, killing each other, and God in heaven is moved by us. Think of that. 
The God that the Old Testament stories show us is a God that looks at us and says, I'm grieved, I'm angry, I love. All the spectrum of emotions are there because God is moved. And so to be made in the image of God is also to be moved. But there's something much more than this going on in this story. Matthew's Gospel has this amazing kind of sub-theme of Jesus reliving Israel's story. And so this is why Matthew's Gospel begins with Jesus' genealogy going all the way back to Abraham. It's a way of saying, look, this Jesus that's coming, he is the ultimate seed of Abraham. He actually is the true Israel. He's the true Israel. And then Matthew tells the story in such a way as to show Jesus reliving some of Israel's key moments. Like what? Like being called out of Egypt. Remember? Out of Egypt I called my son. What else? Like being going into the waters of baptism just like Israel crossed through the Red Sea. What else? That after Israel crossed the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness and were tempted for 40 years. And Jesus, after baptism, is led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. He's reenacting these moments in Israel's life. And so here is Jesus in the garden praying Israel's prayers. Praying the prayers that we heard in the Old Testament reading, Isaiah saying, there's a cup of wrath and you don't want it. But it's coming. And Jesus says, this is the cup I'm about to drink, the cup that was prepared for judgment. And all of a sudden we realize this is Jesus praying not just as a man, but Jesus praying as the Messiah. Jesus praying as the one who stands in for the whole company of the people of God. Yes, Israel, but guess what? All of us. That this is Jesus praying as the whole human race, saying, Father, I'm taking on the depth of this anguish, the depth of this weight. The remarkable thing about what Matthew does over and over again in his gospel is he shows Jesus reliving these Israel moments except passing the test. So Jesus goes through the wilderness and doesn't rebel. In fact, what was the big knock in Deuteronomy about Israel when they went in the wilderness? It says, you did not remember, right? What does Jesus do in the wilderness? All he does is remember. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus is saying, okay, as I do this, this is what Israel was supposed to have done but never did. And then Jesus in the garden says, okay, Here's this cup. I'm taking it on myself, but I'm going to say something that Israel should have said but never said. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is reliving these moments and passing the test. Re-entering these moments and saying, okay, 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 we're going to get this right this time. We're going to reverse the curse. We're going to break the spell that has bewitched the human race. We're going to break the power of sin and death. I also think there's a little bit of a bookend theme happening in Matthew's Gospel because at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Father speaks over Him, this is my beloved Son, right out of baptism. 
And now, toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in the garden, he in essence says, and you are my loving Father. The Father at the beginning says, you're my Son, and Jesus at the end of it is able to say, and you are the good Father. And so I surrender back to you. Here's the thing I want you to catch this morning. In the depth of your anxiety, in the depth of your pain, in the depth of your anguish, you can know that Jesus has gone there. But you can know more than that. Jesus went further than that because he took on himself the weight of all of it. Jesus took on an anguish like no one ever has or ever will. Jesus took on the weight like no one ever has or ever will. And he followed it all the way down to death. And then what happened? And then the Father raised him up. Friends, this is what I want to say to you. Lent doesn't end with Lent. Lament doesn't end with lament. Lent leads us to Easter, and lament will surely lead us to trust. And this depth of death will eventually be swallowed up by life and resurrection. This is not the end. See, Jesus takes the ultimate risk, as all of us, quote-unquote risk, okay? And he says, I'm feeling the weight of this, and I'm going to do what Paul would later say to do. Carry all, be anxious for nothing, but in everything make your requests known. Jesus says, yeah, yeah, no, I did that. Father, this is pressing on me, so if it be possible, let this cup pass. But he does the unthinkable. He says, okay, okay, but, if, but, but I've made my request, but Lord, Father, not as I will but as you will. And somewhere inside of us, there is this fear that that is when we'll lose it. Somewhere inside of us, there is this voice that says, if you say that, it's all over. If you say that, no. If you say that, you don't know what life is going to bring. If you say that, who knows what's going to happen to you. If you say that, that's the moment that it all comes undone. And Jesus' life and death and resurrection stand as a witness to you and to me that when you say, Father, Not as I will, but as you will. The story doesn't end in death, but resurrection. Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus trusts God in a way that we could never trust God. Says words that we would never be willing to say so that we could watch what happens next. What happens when you, out of anguish and anxiety, say, Father, let this cup pass, but not as I will, but as you will. What happens? How does the story end? What will this Father do when you turn it all over to Him? If our story ended on Good Friday, we'd say, well, (laughs) how'd that work out? But our story ends on Easter. So we know that every movement 
feeble as it is toward trust, is a movement in the right direction. Every little movement towards trust is a movement in the right direction. That that's what this God does. I think it's interesting that even in the descriptions of what the Father does for Jesus, you know, you, you don't really find much in the book of Acts of the language being that Jesus rose. Instead, you find the language that God raised Jesus. <laughs> you know why I think that's significant? It means God did not abandon him in the grave. It means Jesus really went to death, to the place where he had no more power, no more will, no more act, no more... Uh, he really did go to the grave. But God did not leave him there. God raised him up. And that is the reason all of us can say, all right, this, this cup, God, I would much rather not be dealing with this sickness or with this situation or with this story. Or I, I would much rather not be dealing. God, if, if there's any other way, let this pass. But God, not as I will, but as you will. Help me trust that you don't abandon us to the grave. Help me trust that it doesn't end in anguish. Help me trust that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you up too.